Hello, and welcome back to the Unto Caesar podcast. Uh, this is episode six. Today, we're going to be talking about Arnhem. Uh, the lyrics for this song are actually all mine, so we'll go ahead and start there, and then we'll move on to the history. I seem to go away amidst violence and haste against an agonized bray. It's darkness and then it's light. Raging fires burn through the night. I looked into you and standing there I saw my dreams. Will and choice through light and shadow and streams. And that joy took part in peace. Though also in anger. That too I did see. There is a cost to all that is fair and green. Where the forces of fate intervene. The levy that all immortals dread. It runs down the street in the finest red. So before we dive into the history of this, um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about these. I really wanted to put myself in the position of somebody that was uh, under direct attack or um, in some type of immediate conflict, either internally or externally. Uh, And the sense of being trapped within and without of yourself within a city within your own mind and also how much of that we put onto other people and the resolution of that kind of trauma that we put onto other people and also toward the end um i tried to make clear that at least the way that i feel about it is that you know there's no there's no good without bad there's no there's no peace without war uh and those things often go hand in hand. And then finally, um, that everything has a cost, good and bad. Um, and so often, like I said before, those costs are completely out of our control. Uh, the forces of fate, right? You know, so many times in our lives, we, we, we don't have a choice as to how things end up or, or how they go or we seemingly fall into an inevitable series of choices that we don't feel like we're actively making ourselves. And that can be something as simple as like, you never know when you pull out of your parking lot that, you know, you're going to get T-boned by somebody and this is your last moments on earth. But also in the same way that, you know, uh, what you're doing now could affect somebody years and years and years ahead of you. They would have it could have some pronounced effect on on their lives, and that's true in the smallest possible way, but also in the largest possible way. And so often that cost, whether we want it to be or not, is in life. And you know the tax that people fear the most is their life, and that's how I chose to end the song with that vision of blood running down the street um, in the finest red. It's beautiful in the way that terrible things are beautiful. They're, it's both beautiful and horrifying at the same time. Okay, let's dive into the history. So just to be clear, Arnhem is a city in Holland. I make that clear later on in the, in the book, but um, it, Arnhem uh, played a significant role in the later stages of World War II. Um, it was a part of Operation Market Garden, which I'll go into detail about. Uh, Market Garden uh, began after uh, the Allied invasion of 
of Normandy, which is commonly referred to as D-Day. The operation name for D-Day was Overlord. So let's start there. After the Allied liberation of Normandy and France began in June 1944, the coalition forces believed that they could launch an even larger, more ambitious offensive to end World War II in 1944. Operation Market Garden was conceived, largely by British Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery, and was intended to deliver a decisive blow to German forces by establishing a bridgehead over the Rhine in the, in the Netherlands, thus allowing the Allies to bypass the heavily fortified Siegfried Line and advance into the German industrial heartland. There were two main components to Operation Market Garden. Market was the airborne phase of the operation. It involved the dropping of three airborne division, two American, the 82nd and the 101st Airborne, and the 1st British Airborne Division behind enemy lines to secure key bridges over several rivers and canals in the Netherlands. And then Garden was the ground phase of the operation. This involved the advance of the British X Corps, supported by other Allied units along Hell's Highway, with the core objective being to link up with the airborne forces after they had crossed the bridges that, that they ha had secured. For market, the British 1st Airborne Division was given the task of capturing the bridge at Arnhem, which is in Holland. This was the furthest objective from the starting point of the operation. The 1st Airborne Division was commanded by Major General Roy Urquhart, who was dropped around Arnhem and Osterbeek, where they faced numerous challenges. The division was dropped too far from the bridge due to anti-aircraft fire and limited aircraft availability, radio communications were ineffective, and the division was also heavily outnumbered and faced the elite 2nd SS Panzer Corps, which was in the area at the time. That was something that they didn't actually foresee happening. One of the key failures of, of Market Garden was poor planning and design. It was a long shot from the beginning. Each stage of the plan relied on the earlier stages to succeed with little to no hang-up, and this was essentially impossible given difficulties encountered by every deployed group at every point in the operation. The 1st Airborne Division were trapped in the town of Arnhem, and the surrounding forest and fighting devolved to moving from house to house and shooting across streets and large open areas that were divided almost evenly between British and German troops. The bridge in Arnhem lay directly parallel to the German line of fire, and any attempt to take and hold the bridge was met with heavy casualties. It should be noted that the 1st Airborne did hold the bridge for four days before being pushed back by heavy German resistance. Due to issues with weather and troop movements, the paratroopers in Arnhem would not receive any assistance or reinforcements until it was far too late. The 1st Airborne Division was only meant to hold out for about 48 hours, and instead they kept fighting for nine days before they were forced back across the Rhine. After it was all said and done, there were 1,500 casualties and 6,500 troops captured. What's interesting, just as a quick aside, about the capturing of British and American troops by the Germans is that uh, they were not always, let's be, be totally clear about this, but often uh, British and American troops were treated under the Geneva Convention. So most of British and American prisoners of war by the Nazis uh, survived. Not all of them did. So this is not a universal truth, but I'm just saying it was more common for them to be treated under the uh, under the conventions of taking prisoners of war than the Russians were, who were almost decimated to a man. So very different treatment there based on who was fighting who and where they were fighting. Okay, back to the text. Market Garden is a widely controversial operation, and it is still heavily debated 
today. Many historians, not all, believe it was quote unquote worth the punt to try and get on the other side of the Rhine and push into Germany as fast as possible. But poor planning, heavy resistance, and battlefield confusion made this impossible almost from the outset. The Germans were still committed to fighting to the last man and to the last bullet, which would drag the war in Europe out until May 1945. The Allies faced some of the bitterest fighting and highest casualty rates of the war in the first part of 1945, and the war in the Pacific dragged on until September 1945. As indicated in the historical brief of Somme, World War II was largely brought on by World War I and the political extremism that had been borne by the restrictions imposed on Germany by the Treaty of Versailles. Hitler was able to rally the populace against the fifth column that defeated Germany from the inside, meaning mainly Jews, and the growing fear of communism from the East, the Soviet Union. If Germany did not win World War II quickly, they were never going to win it. And despite the hard fighting that continued past 1941, the writing was on the wall from that point forward. The people at Arnhem, in the Ardennes, in northern Africa, in the concentration camps, in Poland, not to mention the war in the Pacific, would all have to die before the matter was settled. It would take Germany well over a generation to become whole again after the end of World War II. The end of the war would see our world changed forever. The emergence of atomic weapons, the rise of the United States and the Soviet Union as superpowers, the United Nations was formed, the State of Israel was created by the Balfour Declaration and displaced people who had lived there for centuries, and the colonies of Asia and Africa by Western powers began to disintegrate. Not to mention, the Cold War began and arguably has never ended. Just as a quick aside, um, the Balfour Declaration is something that's really interesting, and uh, I, I don't have enough context to go into detail about it, If it, but... Uh, the creation of the state of Israel was something that was essentially agreed on by Britain um, at the conclusion of World War One, and they had made a variety of promises to different uh, tribes, states, groups uh, across the Arab Peninsula, and um, there's a few political agreements that went bad, um, and going back on their word and many other things that go into this, but essentially two people, two British people in a room carved out the state of Israel on a map. And that's how it was created. Um, it, it became necessary. The allies felt after world war two to execute on this agreement because of the Holocaust. Um, and there's no denying how terrible that was, but if, uh, learning more about the Balfour declaration is something that you're interested in, uh, there's an excellent podcast um, called Empire, uh, where they go into extreme detail about it. Um, that is uh, hosted by two historians who are very well qualified to talk about things like that. Okay, let's go back to the text. I would like to conclude with a brief section of Churchill's, quote, Sinews of Peace speech delivered on March 5th, 1946, and I encourage everyone to read it in its entirety. Quote, I have now stated the two great dangers which menace the homes of the people, war and tyranny. I have not yet spoken of poverty and privation, which are in many cases the prevailing anxiety. But if the dangers of war and tyranny are removed, there is no doubt that science and cooperation can bring in the next few years to the world, certainly in the next few decades, newly taught in the sharpening school of war, an expansion of material well-being beyond anything that has yet occurred in human experience. Now, at this sad and breathless moment, we are plunged in the hunger and distress, which are the aftermath of our stupendous struggle. But this will pass. 
and may pass quickly. And there is no reason except human folly or subhuman crime which should deny to all the nations the, the inauguration and enjoyment of an age of plenty. I have often used words which I learned 50 years ago from a great Irish-American orator, a friend of mine, Mr. Bork Cochran, quote, There is enough for all. The earth is a generous mother. She will provide in plentiful abundance food for all her children if they will but cultivate her soil in justice and in peace, end quote. No matter your opinion on Churchill, I I think he's one of the greatest people that have ever lived and was certainly a man of the moment. Um, he certainly outstayed his welcome in British politics after the war, but I can't imagine anybody else uh, steering that ship. Um, and I think he's a very inspirational figure. And also something that's not very well known about him, you have to keep in mind, you know, he he was a child of empire. He, he grew up when he grew up when Britain was at the absolute height of its power. He served in world war one, but as a kid, he didn't, he had a very bad upbringing. His parents were incredibly cruel to him. Um, they sent him off to boarding school, which that in and of itself is not bad. That's incredibly common in England, um, especially for upper class people. But he, he would write letters to his mother just begging for her attention, asking her to tell him about, about things that are going on at home. You know, do you love me? Things like this. He's under the age of 10, you know, and she just either does not write him back or writes him back in such a crass and cruel way that it that it's impossible to understand how this man did not grow up to be an absolute psychopath. Um, and his father, of course, had a failed p- uh, political career, which which stalked Winston for some time, um, but he certainly outgrew, outlived, and outperformed them. Um, he's just such an interesting man, and I think it was really devastating for him, not devastating to the people that they ruled, but the the entire loss of, of the British Empire, I think, uh, was really devastating for him. Um, but I know that he loved Elizabeth II, and and she loved him and those early years of her monarchy where uh he counseled her are are sweet um they had a very sweet relationship and i think that uh the world is better for both of them in some way or or another this is taking us really off topic from arnhem um i could really talk about operation market garden specifically arnhem for hours and hours and hours. I won't subject you all to that. But one thing that I did um, um, omit from the text uh, that I think is important is that every year uh, in Arnhem, the people there celebrate uh, what the British Airborne Division did there. They celebrate their lives. They celebrate the sacrifice that they made. They celebrate uh, their deaths. Um and they actually, houses all around the city fly the regimental flag um, outside. So like on flagpoles, outside of businesses, outside of homes, on bridges, especially on the bridge. And uh, school children are given a soldier that fought there. Um, and they do a report on on that soldier. And they write a letter to them and lay that that, that letter at their grave. And then they pass that information on to the next, like year of school. Uh, uh, they pass that information on to the next uh, 
the incoming class so that that knowledge is kind of carried forward every time. And I think that's a really special thing. You see cities that were liberated in World War II celebrate their liberation. You often don't see the celebration of a specific group um, or of a, a specific regiment like that. And that, I think, really speaks highly of the 1st Airborne Division that was at, at Arnhem and the way that they conducted themselves. And, of course, the bridge uh, there was renamed John Frost Bridge. Um, he was a general major uh, there, and uh, he held the bridge for some time. Um, so they renamed it after him. So now it's John Frost Bridge. Uh, and also, just to be clear... Uh, the movie A Bridge Too Far, while it is a very good movie, is not historically accurate really at all. Um, so you can watch that to get a sense of what it was like, but that's not it's not really true. The way that the uh, German forces progress on Arnhem, when they bring tanks in, the types of tanks they bring in, none of that is accurate. So take it with a grain of salt. There's a really interesting book that was put out, I believe, in the 50s. Uh, the author was a man named... Z his his pen name was Zeno. I can't remember his actual name, but it's called The Cauldron. And he was, he, he was at Arnhem. And uh, it's written like a narrative fiction, except it's actually a biography or a memoir in disguise. And it is super good. It, it's also not very long. So um, if you just want a, a thrilling read about about that um it, then that's a good place to start uh, also um an, another podcast that's worth checking out that goes into extreme detail they, they actually did nine episodes on the 75th anniversary of uh the arnhem operation um it's called we have ways of making you talk and um it's hosted by historian james holland and a comedian but he's also a world war ii enthusiast and actually knows quite a bit about it al murray um, it's an excellent show. Uh, James Holland and his brother, Tom Holland are probably two of my favorite historians of all time. They're excellent people. Um, so yeah, definitely worth checking out. And finally, anytime you talk about world war two, it's always interesting, right? Because that's the war that really gets all the press. Um, there's a lot of people that feel that was the last just war that was ever fought. Um, the United States, many would argue, would always be a superpower. I mean, just the the landmass that we possessed, the industrial structure that we possessed, uh, the richness of resources that we possessed. I mean, we were always going to be the successor to Britain in some way. But World War II really solidified that. Um, without American in industrialization, without FDR, uh, it probably would not have happened as fast. And the war effort across all sides, but especially the Allied side, is is incredible operationally. And that is something that, um, again, I can talk about for, for hours. But the sheer scale in which people's countries, ethnic groups, divisions, uh, branches of the military worked together to form a semi-cohesive unit that fought in tandem literally across the entire planet is insane. It would be one of the most wonderful things in the world if it wasn't so awful simultaneously. 
if so many millions of people weren't displaced and killed and and lives uprooted and historical artifacts destroyed and the the holocaust and every all of the baggage that comes with world war ii just the sheer scale of it is hard not to stand in absolute awe of and so if it's not something that you're interested in um i think there's something for everybody there it's it's incredible and not to mention it gave birth to my favorite aerial fighting plane of all time which is the spitfire mark 9 um that is a beautiful plane it came in a few different iterations they had um uh they had c d and e type wings um basically always elliptical they were powered by a late stage merlin engine um they're just something special about them and if you listen to interviews from world war ii pilots that flew them the comparison to horses is 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 often made uh and the spitfire is always described as a thoroughbred you can't you can't dominate it you can't control it absolutely but if you work in tandem with it you've got like absolute mastery of the air and seeing them fly hearing the engines kick off uh is beautiful and i think we'll leave it there thank you guys again hope you enjoyed it and we'll catch you in the next one